Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, LLS, will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps, inside or outside, on stairs or on the road, or on your treadmill. Climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony, and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist, Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Welcome to a brand new VanCast, J-Pat, and Drancer with you. A remarkable week in history, Drancer, and an extraordinary week in the hockey world. With so many teams and players reacting to the murder of George Floyd and the responses themselves have sparked another heated discussion about what to say, how to say it, when to say it, where to post it. It it really been remarkable. Uh, But I think, you know, the most important thing is that we have seen some NHLers sort of step out of their comfort zones and... You know, the ones that have spoken from the heart, I mean, there have been a few statements that look like they have been crafted by agents or PR people, and that's a a topic I want to get to because obviously you have that experience over the last bunch of years, but uh, credit to the ones that really seem to have taken a moment or two here uh, at a point in time, you know, to do some self-reflection and self-assessing and come up with statements that I I really do think could and will affect some change. Yeah, and, you know... I, uh, I like to quote Dead Prez on occasion when it comes to the difference in how something that's legitimate hits versus something that sort of feels phony. 
that feels crafted, right? And it's, uh, if you're a liar, liar, pants on fire, wolf crier, agent with a wire, I'm going to know it when I play it. And for me anyway, the statements that we saw from the likes of Jonathan Taves, Patrice Bergeron, Tyler Sagan at the very top of the list, but, you know, on and on down the line, including Bo Horvat and Troy Stetcher, those felt personal. Those felt personally crafted. If they were looked at by PR folks or agents, I suspect it was a copy edit. And I think that level of outspokenness is rare from NHL players. And I think to some extent it reflects two things in particular. One is the leadership that Evander Kane has shown in advocating eloquently, forcefully, willingly uh, for, you know, the subject line that Black Lives Matter and that this is a distinct moment in terms of, you know, protesters taking to the streets, setting fire to the third precinct and, and bringing about real change, right? Like we've seen today in many, in many, in Minnesota that the attorney general Keith Ellison has brought charges uh, of second degree murder. Like he upped to the severity of the charge against Derek Chauvin and he's also brought charges of a betting murder against the three other officers who were on the scene. You know, does that happen without the reaction from the local population? Does that happen without, you know, a level of protests that didn't just happen in all 50 states of the United States, but happened in Vancouver. We had thousands strong at the art gallery, happened in Toronto, happened in Montreal, happened globally. You had seas of people in Amsterdam. You had people in Paris, on and on. And, you know, at the end of the day, anyone calling for, you know, peaceful pro protests and oh, I only stand with peaceful protests and think about the property and, you know, business owners, lives matter. Like, what are you talking about? First of all, like you're nuts. And secondly, you know, don't give me stand for the anthem and be peaceful in protest. We've seen this week alone what happened as a result, what how how the government in Minnesota reacted to these demonstrations from people and that it brought about change. And so I think it's really important to note that. I think it's really important to tip your cap to those who've been out in public, especially in the United States, where things have been dangerous on a pretty regular basis, where 11,000 people have been arrested, uh, where there have been a variety of injuries and, you know, wannabe soldiers, uh, using rubber bullets incorrectly and just being cowardly in their agitation uh, of peaceful protest groups and, and occasionally non-peaceful protest groups too, of course. But nonetheless, uh, I think this is a pretty proud moment for the people. And, you know, as tough as it is to watch, as scary as it can be to get on Twitter and feel like the world is burning, like there are moments where discord is righteous, where discord is necessary and where discord brings about real change. I think we've lived through that over the past week demonstrably. And I think seeing how that's impacted the outspokenness of NHL players is, first of all, I think a credit to Kane. And secondly, I think a credit to the fact that this is a singular moment. This is not Kaepernick kneeling. This is not JT Brown putting his fist in the air. Like, this is different. Uh, this matters in a different way. And to see so many, you know, white NHL players who are admittedly not comfortable speaking out about these issues take stands in, in oftentimes like take really provocative stands and in, in you know you think about Jonathan Taves noting the mistreatment and racism you know legacy of colonialism in, in both the United States and in Canada 
as it regards to First Nations people. And, you know, that's a level of thoughtfulness and reflectiveness that's extremely atypical from NHL players um, and has been very welcome to note, I think, as we've all sort of, you know, watched what's unfolded this past week. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up Evander Kane. And look, I know this is a a Canuck-centric podcast, but there are issues, obviously, that are, are much broader than the Vancouver Canucks. And look, we will talk some hockey towards the back end. Uh, we'll get to name that Canuck, as we usually do as well. Uh, but this is what we're all living through right now. And I want to be careful when I phrase this, uh, because obviously the murder of George Floyd uh, that has sparked all of this is the latest in a long, long list of, um, you know, mistreatment of blacks by the police in the U.S. And everybody across the board has to condemn uh, the action that led to George Floyd's passing. Now, in response, and this I'm trying to get at the response to that, and that's where, you know, again, hear me when I say this because I want to make sure I phrase it properly, but... You know, from a hockey perspective, maybe the best thing that could have happened was that hockey was on hold, Thomas, when when all of this happened. Because you know it and I know it, and uh, on some level we might have even been guilty of it ourselves. But the hockey world itself would have said, I can just, I can feel it. If this had been, you know, May and the playoffs were going on, you know that there would have been a, sang- a segment of the hockey media and the hockey fan base that would have said, yeah, that's terrible. It can't happen. Did you see the Canucks power play last night? And I think people would have tried to, you know, wrestle the conversation back into these hockey channels. And that's wrong. And so we're at a point in time when a pandemic has put the world on hold that includes hockey. And it's allowed, I think, some of these hockey players that generally don't have to think about social issues and many things, to be honest, outside of the rink, right? I mean, you've seen it firsthand working for a team, but you've seen it as well uh, as a media member. Like, these guys are spoon-fed. Like, they really do. We always talk about the bubble uh, around, you know, we're Zoom to play, uh, but they live in a different bubble most of the time. And so I think, you know, for a lot of these guys, young, white, privileged, with a whole whack of cash, in some ways, again, if there was a positive to come out of it, it's that it's forced some of these guys out of their comfort zones and force them to take a stance, and I think that's a good thing. I, I agree with you. And I think, first of all, I don't know how much of Blake Wheeler's comments you saw, but yeah, Wheeler seen, specifically yeah. addressed that, right? Wheeler specifically said, right now we're at home, and we're bearing witness to this in a way that we would usually wouldn't when our lives are revolving around hockey. And, you know, you think about the grind of the playoffs or the season. Like, guys are taking care of their bodies, right? They, you go to the rink in the morning, you come back, you spend some time with family, you nap, you go back to the rink, you prepare, you sit in your team meetings, you do your pre-scout, you do your, you know, dynamic workout, your anaerobics, and then you hit the ice for a warm-up skate, and then you play, and then you know you have two days, and sometimes you're traveling, and so you're just maintaining your, your body, you know, you're passing the time with meals and maybe uh, uh, with friends a bit, but you know, it's not the same as as the flow of life now. And the other thing that Blake Wheeler said that I found really striking, really honest, was he talked about showing his children the video and their reaction to the murder of George Floyd. And I thought, you know, for a guy who's from Minneapolis, obviously this means more, right? Like there's a level of attachment, closeness that he has to the incident. But his sort of relatively graphic description of his kid's confusion, right? Why is he doing that, right? Like, 
was, I thought, you know, uh, extremely touching. Like it was just something that resonated a lot with me and, you know, something that I applaud him for doing and, and for addressing openly with the media. You know, that's, that's, first of all, Blake Wheeler was one of the first guys who was really outspoken here on this. Um, and secondly, I think to go in as go into as much depth as he has about his personal reaction to it, about his family's reaction to it. Um, you know, that was, I think, pretty meaningful. And, um, you know, between him and Evander Kane, I do think that that created an environment that, you know, led players to understand that, you know, this wasn't another incident that you could sit out. Like this was one that required self-reflection and, and re-examination. And now, now where we get to is, you know, how does this impact things? Like you, you, we talk about Kane, right? But you think about Kane's experience in Winnipeg, right? You think about, you know, some of the uh, criticisms that have been lobbed at the likes of P.K. Subban. You think about, you know, how, you know, even guys like K. Andre Miller and, and some of the racism that they've encountered in being rolled out by the media and, and will probably continue to encounter in some, you know, sort of pernicious ways as they make their way through their hockey careers. Um, you know, that's now where what we, what needs to change. And, you know, what also needs to change is how people are evaluated and, and players are evaluated. Um, you know, we've I do think hockey's like hockey is more multicultural now than it was when I was growing up, when it was truly just groups of white guys. But it's still a, a majority white sport to a, to an absurd degree. That's especially true of, you know, there's of head coaches, uh, you know, with the exception of uh, a very few um, you know, that you think about Paul Gerard, the former uh, assistant coach of the Calgary Flames, and he worked with uh, Travis Green in the, on the Utica Comets staff. I mean, Manny Malhotra, uh, Barube in, in St. Louis, but it's like the vast majority of coaches, every GM, like this is still, you look across the draft floor, right? And it's just well, a that, sea of white guys. That's the perfect example. And, and, you know, not many of our listeners have probably had the opportunity. I mean, the draft was in Vancouver, so some may have been there last year. I don't know how closely they would have paid attention. But that's, to me, Drancer, where it's always just driven home is the draft floor. It yeah. is a collection of 400 old white hockey guys, essentially, yeah. with, you know, there are a couple. There are a few women that have moved into, you know, on the PR side and some in management. Uh, there's a few minorities. But for the most part, that draft floor is just a bunch of old white hockey guys. Well, and you want to understand why there's a lack, for the most part, of creative decision-making <laughs> among NHL front offices. Like, look no further than that. Look no further than the lack of diversity of opinion uh, being heard in the you know halls of power at the NHL level. And, you know, the leagues actually got more more uh, women executives working for them than, than most teams do. But at the team level anyway, the halls of power are dominated by white men and there are a variety of sort of cause and effect things that, you know, have harmed the sport, I think. Like overall have created, and, and you know what, the, the last thing about this is you think about, you read all those statements, right? The team statements, and especially like there were teams that really nailed it. I thought the Boston Bruins stand out head and shoulders above the rest to me. They you know, said Black Lives Matter as the Canucks did to their credit. Um, and, you know, they called George Floyd's 
a death a murder, which I think is important. I mean, that was a that was a real statement. That wasn't corporate gobbledygook about unity. That was real. And the fact is, is that the Bruins were, you know, one of a team that stood out because of the fact that everyone else's statement was relatively safe and on and on. But you go to those rinks around the NHL, and again, I think Canucks fans, you go to a game in Vancouver, a Canucks game in Vancouver, and the crowd does look like Vancouver, right? I mean, for the most part. I mean, maybe maybe it's majority white to a slightly larger extent than the city itself, but the fact is there's a huge Indo-Canadian presence at Canucks games. There's a huge uh, uh, Asian presence at Canucks games. Like The Canucks fan base itself is one of the more multicultural that you'll find in the league, but go elsewhere. Like go to go to a Maple Leafs game versus and, and compare it to a Raptors game, or go to any of those American markets, and you know the experience is pretty different, and you could, you could feel it in terms of some of the teams mincing words, and that remains a, a real challenge I think for the sport, um, in terms of its growth, in terms of its wider appeal, in terms of its relevance, mainstream relevance, and I also do think that it creates an environment where, you know. Episodes like the Akeem Aliu episode um, have been allowed to fester, and and those responsible for his mistreatment, guys like Steve Downey, guys like Bill Peters, um, end up, you know, not just playing long careers, but being promoted, being part of Hockey Canada, being prominent parts of Hockey Canada. And I do think that that's something, you know, we, we can't pretend that this stops at the border. Like, as Canadians, I think there are difficult questions that we need to ask ourselves as well especially as it regards, you know, the treatment of First Nations people, continued racism there, and then also the way that, you know, uh, Black Canadians and First Nations folks continue to bear the brunt of, you know, being stopped more frequently by police, being more often the subject of police violence, being overrepresentative in, being overrepresented in deaths uh, at the hands of police. Like, there's work to be done in this country, too, and, and I do think that this is an important reminder for us that, in this country and in this sport that we all love, you know, there's a tremendous level of progress still to be made and, you know, that we need to sort of keep our eye on and, and not ignore. You had mentioned Evander Kane, and I was fortunate enough to have him on the radio last Friday, I suppose. Um, that was the day that he did ESPN in the morning. And, you know, I, I give him credit because this is a guy that at times I think has acted immaturely, has sort of been labeled uh, immature, maybe not a great team guy. Uh, you know, he sounded just like he had grown up. And I, I love the fact that he wasn't picking his spots. Like, you know, we cold called him essentially to come on the radio. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Vancouver's his hometown. Maybe that was part of it. Whatever the case, you know, he said what he said. And he said strong words on ESPN, but he didn't leave it there. And I see... You know, he's done things with uh, Ryan Clark of The Athletic as well. I mean, basically anybody that's wanted to talk to Evander Kane uh, on this topic, uh, he is using his platform and he's using it well and, and properly. And I say good for him. I mean, that to me is a sign of maturity. So uh, I've been glad to see him there. Now, he called out Sidney Crosby on ESPN, and that was Friday morning. And this kind of became a side story, you know, that there hadn't been a response from Sidney Crosby and that the hockey world wanted and some corners needed to hear a response from Sidney Crosby. And ultimately, Sid responded. And, you know, I, I just I found it fascinating that, you know, there was a fair bit of heat on Sidney, but people weren't really calling 
to hear anything from Connor McDavid. And yet, as we sit down and record this, I, I know within the hour, McDavid has put out a statement now as well. Um, but it, it's just interesting. Like You've got this perspective of having worked on the communications side and probably worked with some players uh, through some situations, not like this necessarily, but... Uh, you know, is it fair to, to to sort of put a time frame on some of these players, the star players, uh, as opposed to the rank and file, uh, you know, or do guys have to, like, you know, my sense is that some of these players probably wanted to sit back and listen and maybe try to gather some facts of things that they didn't know uh, about a topic that, you know, they weren't terribly comfortable talking about in the first place. You think it was fair to sort of put Sydney on the clock to make some kind of statement? I'm a little torn on this just because there is a level of work required, a level of scrutiny also that comes with speaking out on these topics. And, you know, I think it requires courage to do what Luongo did, for example, in Parkland. Like, I think it requires courage to do what JT Brown did, raising his fist prior to, you know, his first game of the season um, back in, you know, when, when Kaepernick kneeling was a big story, like, what Kaepernick did obviously required a ton of courage and and cost him his career in an unprecedented fashion. So for me anyway, having worked with guys as they go through, you know, a a controversy vortex uh, where they are written about, not by hockey writers and criticized, not for their performance, but for who they are, for, you know, whether they're Canadian, for whether they're right to have an opinion. Um, You know, I think there's a level of discomfort uh, that comes with that, that, I have a lot of respect for people who want to pick a, pick a subject and become a spokesperson for it. Um, you know, and, and I think that should be applauded. And uh, from my perspective, anyway, I've always sort of viewed it as something you don't have to do, like something that you do if you care, like do it if you care. And if you're someone who wants to be a hockey player, uh, you should be entitled to be a hockey player. We don't have a requirement that a hockey player is also a social conscious or a socially conscious sort of spokesperson for X, Y, Z issue. And, you know, to localize it and keep it on the Canucks, I think about Tyler Mott and Tyler Mott's being outspoken over the course of the season about mental health issues, right? Like even that, you know, is that's a relatively safe topic relative to, for example, condemning, um, you know, state-sponsored violence by police forces, right? But even that requires, you know, there's a level of sacrifice there. There's a level of studying. There's a level of, keeping yourself informed. There's a level of being willing to have the conversation 8 million times. You think about, remember JT Miller's reaction when he was asked about bowling on that Zoom call? And he's like, you talk about bowling once and you get asked about it. <laughs> yeah. 8 million. You know, like you have yeah. to be willing to do this every day, right? Like you say something, you have to know that there are 40 people who want to talk about it, tell the story. And so, you know, the Crosby thing, I think is a little bit different because Crosby means more in this sport and Crosby means more in this country too, right? Like I I used to joke that if aliens invaded uh, and the government really shut down, like Canadians would just naturally turn to Sidney Crosby as our leader. Um, Like there's a level of, you know, prominence that he has publicly and socially in this country and, and in the NHL that, that I think does make it different. And so, you know, him, McDavid, like there are people who are almost almost transcend the sport and hearing from them, I do, I do think does take on a level of uh, like a premium level of importance and, you know, having them support, um, you know, 
inclusion in the sport, but also condemning the acts that we've seen. Like, it's a pretty low bar, and and I probably would have liked to see, you know, those gentlemen be more more reactive, more reflective of it. But on the other hand, the fact that like taking it does doesn't taking attendance on that sort of lessen the impact of a statement like the extraordinary one Taves made like doesn't Taves' statement deserve to stand out more because of how genuine and authentic it was and because it's not a requisite not because he's not ticking a box but because it was something he believed and felt strongly um you know for me anyway that's sort of how i look at it these are at the end of the day not people who are running for office they're people who are extremely talented in a very narrow sense and they're entertainers, you know, as a result of that skill set. I don't think they should be obligated necessarily to be a social uh, conscience for their communities or to, or to be community leaders. I think that's a unrealistic standard to hold athletes to. Uh, but that said, I do think it means more when, you know, when they do come out and conduct themselves the way that, you know, they have been following Wheeler and, and Kane's lead over the past week. And as a result, I, I think it still matters. And in the case of guys like McDavid and Crosby, I'm a little bit more sensitive to the idea that they should have been outspoken just because there's an importance. Like these are community leaders, not just in their countries, not just in the markets they play in, but in the sport itself. And having them be outspoken in terms of saying, hey, like, we got to examine some of our attitudes, even some of our language, um, you know, little things like talking about, like in soccer, there's this thing where, uh, uh, you know, midfielders like Paul Pogba, who's a, a French midfielder, plays for Manchester United and is, is black, like he's often described as like aggressive, right? And it's like, but he's also thoughtful, like he's also thinking the game, like it's just there's soft sort of racist terms that people throw around um, that people need to be more mindful of. So having guys who are real leaders in the sport speak out, I I do think is more important. Um, And, you know, I I understand people's frustration uh, with the likes of Crosby and McDavid based on, you know, the fact that they're seen as spokespeople for the league. Well, I mean, these are extraordinary times. There's no doubt. It's an important conversation. And I, I think for the most part, hockey has uh, risen to the challenge here. Again, there's not much of a baseline to judge it against in the sport. But I think for the most part, uh, guys have taken some time. They've been reflective. And I, I think there have been some important statements made. And, and it's a good first step. I mean, it can't just stay there. And ultimately, uh, actions are going to speak louder than words. But uh, good on the players uh, that have. Uh, taking this first step and good on the teams ultimately as well. You know, not that we need to hear from our sports teams and yet at the same time, I mean, they are such important pillars in the communities that they uh, live and play that, you know, on some level, I think it is important that they get out there and at least uh, let us know what they stand for. Uh, You know what I'd really like? And it doesn't come with the podcaster's handbook, uh, but it's a way to make a sharp turn uh, into uh, personal hygiene and grooming. Now, uh, somewhere, someday, maybe somebody will write the podcasting handbook. Uh, but I have to take a sec here before we actually talk about hockey uh, to mention the fact that the Last Dance documentary has brought up the ongoing debate that no one will ever win. Is Michael Jordan the GOAT? Is LeBron the GOAT? One thing we do know for sure is Manscaped, Drancer. Manscaped is the GOAT for men's grooming. And we've mentioned this before here 
on the podcast for a number of reasons. Manscaped, the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming and hygiene because of their ceramic blade and skin-safe technology, your snags uh, are going to be reduced uh, while designing your own triangle offense down under if you know where I'm going there. Uh, And we've got a deal for you right here, right now. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code THEATHLETIC. Hey, hockey, you you and and Russo uh, actually track down coaches that coach hockey uh, that are going to go head-to-head here. Uh, whenever hockey resumes, and you've got a piece up, a uh, fun piece at The Athletic right now with Dean Evison of the Minnesota Wild. You talked to Travis Green. Uh, I-, I thought it was funny because when we had Travis here on the VanCast not that long ago, uh, he was in off-season mode. He was remarkably relaxed. He was terrific. And, and yes. we had some fun with him, and he told some good stories. Uh, he sounds, from the quotes that I read in the piece, like he's working, I don't know if he's there yet, but he sounds like he's getting back into coach mode again. Yeah, no, he hundred percent was, and to the point where I, I made fun of it, made fun of it afterwards. I was like, oh well, now we can have a real conversation. And he was like, yeah, I can flip the switch pretty quick here. And uh, <laughs> and look, you know, fair enough. I mean, at the end of the day, too, this is a matchup, right? Like this is a five game series, and so you know, I don't expect Travis Green to get on the horn on the record and say, oh boy, that wild defense, you know, like they scored 46 goals this season. Like, my God, you know, like I don't expect that and fair enough. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I like the fact that we might be eight weeks out from puck drop, but the games, the gamesmanship, like both coaches, I think were pretty cagey in terms of, you know, how they talked about preparing, how they talked about their teams themselves, how they talked about, you know, the, the the opponents and and look that was fun like for me honestly the return to on the record season mode Travis Green like I enjoyed that um, honestly made me smile and and wistful for a world where we get to do that on a daily basis Jeff <laughs> well when I flipped the calendar to June earlier in the week not that I actually have a calendar to flip no. anymore because uh, everything's on the phone but uh, just the idea that it was June. I wanted to allow myself to think that we could actually like form a sentence and, and say, you know, next month when hockey returns. And, and I still hope that that is the case. I don't know if they're going to be playing games in July. I guess in my mind, I'm sort of prepared to, to move that into August. But at the very least, uh, you know, if all goes well here and the league is able to jump through the, the necessary medical uh, hoops that... You know, they should be back on the ice. We should be moving into phase two of the NHL return to play protocol, get some guys back around Rogers Arena. And by the end of the month, you know, uh, I would think, I I would imagine in the next couple of weeks, in fact, that we'll have a a more defined timeline of what the summer is going to look like. It's amazing. Like Gary Bettman stood before all of us there, uh, made the pronouncements about the return to play kind of roadmap. And, you know, that got a real boost and a, a bump and provided some energy to hockey fans. Uh, given all that's happened, though, uh, in the last week to 10 days now, I mean, that just, it feels like forever ago, right? Like, I don't know when we're going to hear from the commission next with some more details, but that last announcement, it provided a spike. It got us all excited, but uh, it just feels like it may as well have been last century now uh, because of all that's happened here uh, in the last week. No, and, you know, I, I mean, you think about how 10 days ago when the NHL announced their format, Right. Minneapolis and L.A. were among the 
you know, considerations as hub cities, yep. right? And then Minneapolis has been, you know, a site of mass protests for the past week. And, you know, the area around the Staples Center is basically a, a de facto military base now, right? So, you know, we'll we'll see what impact this has and, and you know, how long it continues too. Like when you look at where we are societally and high rates of unemployment and a pandemic going on, like, you know, we could be in for a long, tense summer, and, and it's impossible to imagine that that won't have an impact on the NHL's return to play schemes. So definitely going to be something to, to keep monitoring. But in the interim, as we focus on, you know, the, the very narrow topic of Canucks versus Wild, you know, I, I do think anyway, it's interesting to hear that the coaches are keen to, to sort of pace themselves, to not over-prepare, uh, that, you know, they haven't sort of broached the subject of the matchup against the, uh, you know, to their players um, that in many cases they haven't even sort of formalized like who the black aces are. Uh, that's sort of not even yet top of mind, like phase three or phase two hasn't even begun in, in a lot of markets and especially not the Canadian markets. So, you know, there's a lot of road to run here. And while, you know, it's something that you and I obviously obsess over day to day, it does feel inessential at the moment, doesn't it? It does. Uh, just one other hockey note before we finish up, uh, as we always do with Name That Canuck. Uh, but I saw, I don't know if uh, you were paying attention to uh, the latest Hughes versus McCarr. I saw NHL.com pulled its writers and uh, another round of voting to Kale McCarr. I mean, you were out in front of this story early, and I know that uh, you've written extensively. Uh, you have made your case abundantly clear for for Quinn Hughes, but uh, the NHL.com writers uh, siding with Kale McCarr. It's yet the latest vote uh, that goes his way. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not surprised by this. Like, McCarr having that four-point night in one of the very last games that anyone saw NHL players play in the 1920 season, and it happened against the New York Rangers, a pretty big voting block. You know, that matters too, right? Like, those four points make it close in terms of the scoring, and sort of offset like we always knew you know when i when i wrote in what was it early december that i thought hughes had a chance to surpass mccarr's uh, case right it was based on the fact that hughes had superior underlying numbers and that i didn't think mccarr had you know sustainable weight based on his point per game stats in the first 27 games of the season and i was right like from the point that i wrote that article on you know hughes's sort of two-way profile continued to be superior and uh, Hughes outscored Makar on a per game basis from that point through the rest of the season. But at the end of the day, you know, I think the, I think there was a, a logic that needed to unfold for Hughes to win. And that logic required another 13 games. Like it required the Canucks to make the playoffs, right? Uh, it required Hughes to lead Makar in scoring at the end of it and it required McCarr to start to be or sorry it required Hughes to start to be in this rarefied air where it's like oh is he a top five all-time scorer but for among rookies right like oh wow he just tied Ray Bork for points by a rookie defenseman like he just broke Ray Bork's record for most four-point games by a defenseman like he needed the conversation to take that turn to be about how Hughes is you know the the best rookie producing defenseman since Leech, right? Since um, Housley, right? Like those needed to be the names that were bandied about in 
in, you know, par part and parcel with Hughes. And it would have happened, right? Like it would have happened. He would have gotten close. Uh, he certainly would have had a chance at, at breaking into the top five all time and beating Chris Chelios and, and maybe even tying Ray Bork's, you know, 64 points, I think it is, rookie scoring record, right? Which would have been good for fifth all time. Like he had a real shot at that and he was deprived of it as a result of COVID. Um, and I don't think that he can come back from that. Like the, you know, first impression that Makar made in the opening two months of the season, in addition to the, you know, playoff sort of lead that he had as a result of what he did against the Calgary Flames in his hometown last season, you know, ultimately insurmountable. And so, you know, I still think Hughes has a good argument. The argument is based on the fact that he was more important to his team than Makar was to his and that his underlying numbers and his two-way impact was greater uh, than Makar's. Um, ultimately, I think he just ran out of time and as such is, is likely to fall short here. Right. And I think you know, I, I, I'll still make a closing yeah, argument at some point, though, because I still enough. believe and, it. Like, I'm not people, well, you know, people call me a homer, when, but I'm not like this is just what I this is how I see the game. Like the, the avalanche and, outscored opponents by a wider margin without Makar than they did with him on the ice. The Canucks got outscored without Hughes. Like for me, it's really simple. <laughs> Sorry. When are votes cast? <laughs> when when are the final tallies going to be registered? When when do guys vote on the awards this year? Yeah, I'll be curious to to see that. The PHWA communicated with its writers at the end of May, so what, like less than a week ago, and said that the expectation was that the um awards voting would begin shortly even though the NHL was just beginning to tackle it. Um, but they communicated to the the rank and file that they have not yet received any guidance as to when the awards voting may begin. I would expect this month. I would expect over the next week or two, um, you know, we'll get the Ernst & Young email and, and do our balloting. And, you know, at probably I'll probably pre-write it and then the day it drops sort of make a closing argument just on this topic just because I find it fascinating and because, you know, I think the fact of the matter is is that Hughes, what Hughes was good at like where Hughes was better than McCarr this season was in a variety of subtle areas that matter and that matter a ton for a defenseman and you know that's a case I'm keen to make well I think you know it's going to be a battle that we're going to watch for a long long time and hopefully the two of them are you know working their way into Norris trophy consideration before too long but right now this is all about the Calder and we'll see how uh, that goes ultimately when the awards are handed out all right I'm going to take a sec here to talk to business owners or people in marketing that control the advertising budget. Those are the people that I, I want to talk to because if you're looking for a unique way to get the word out about your company, your services, your product, uh, we're here to do this. We've got a highly engaged audience. They are loyal. They are sports fans. If you're listening to the VanCast, then they're probably a lot like you. And so we say this would be a great vehicle if you want to spread the word about uh, whatever it is that uh, you're trying to sell. Uh, we're all ears and we're, our listeners are as well. So here's the the action that we need. Uh, to advertise on this show, go to theathletic.com slash podcasts. There you're going to fill out a really simple form. And we'll get back to you right away. So go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads and do that today. All right, you ready to finish up with Name That Canuck? Let's go. All right. Okay, here we go. This player appeared in 988 NHL games, got that close to 1,000, but didn't quite get there. 
five teams over 15 seasons. In terms of tenure, the Canucks were second on his list. He played for the top team twice. The top team in hockey, like he was on two President's Trophy winning teams. No, sorry, poorly worded on my part. Canucks were second on his list in tenure. The team that was tops on his list of tenure, of games played, he played for that team on two separate occasions. Oh, got it, okay. Um, Guy who played for two separate teams and played a fair bit of time, spent a fair bit of time with the Canucks. Five teams Mm -hmm. in total. But yep. one of them he played for twice. Okay. So Matt Sundin only played for three. Mark Messier only played for... No, I'm kidding. Those guys both played a thousand games. Um, yes. All right. Um, hmm. <laughs> oh, that's a good one, man. I'm very, very confident at this point that I am stumped. To move this along, I will hazard a guess as soon as I come up with someone reasonable. The <laughs> the person I'm thinking of... Boy, oh boy. Um, boy, oh boy. This is a tough one, man. The... Oh, it's the three-pointer. Of course, so of course. A little of course. Bit. Yes, I'm going to guess Jeff Cornell. No, but that's a good guess. Yeah, I mean, he played, that, that he played for the Blues around, twice, right? Yeah, and good long stint here with the Canucks, so yeah. uh, it is not Jeff Cordenal. Okay. So the second clue, as a player, this guy was teammates with both Rick Tockett and Craig Berube at different points in his career, and also played for the two franchises that those guys coach now. Ooh, okay. I like that. So he's teammates with Tockett and Berube. And he played for both the Blues. So I'm going to guess Jeff Cortnall again. No, I'm <laughs> he played for both <laughs> the Blues and the um, and the Coyotes. Okay. Jeez, that's a that's a tough second clue, man. That's a tough second clue, which is fair. It I gives mean, you a time frame. It gives you that's true. That's additional true. information. So I know they played late '80s, early '90s, right? Maybe a little bit after that. Um, okay. Do, do, um. Boy, oh boy. Um. I'm just trying to think. Like, one guy who played for the Coyotes for sure was... Cliff Ronning, right? Cliff Ronning and ended his career with the Coyotes. But I can't think who would he have played twice with. And there's no way that he played more games for any teams than he played with the Canucks. Like, I, I, I don't think that's right. Um, dude, um, how about... The anguish. Yeah, no, I, I've got, I've got serious... I, I'm going to guess here, though I can't think of what team he played for twice, but I'm going to guess Yurke Lume. No, it is not Yurke Lume. So we move on to the final clue for a single point. Game 7 against Minnesota in 2003. We have spoken about it a fair bit on this podcast, including earlier this week with Dan Kluge. Yeah. 
Game 7 against Minnesota in 2003 was the last game he played in a Canucks uniform. Oh. Hmm. He then returned to a previous team to finish his career the following season. Oh, man. That's a tough three-pointer. J-Pat, you're killing me. <laughs> um, all right. It was, his, it was his birthday earlier this week. <laughs> Not that that's help you. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Great. Um, this is birthday earlier this week. Thanks, man. He's a um, BC. He's a BC boy. Oh, okay. Um, BC guy. You didn't really talk about him much when he played. He didn't talk a whole lot. Nobody really spoke to him. Well, I wasn't around. I don't know. That doesn't help me. But no, no. Well, stop. He didn't have a huge. <laughs> he didn't have a huge profile. Is what I'm getting at. He was one of those guys that you know. He certainly didn't seek out the limelight. Right. Um. Oh, goodness. I think I'm... What happens? Have we had one where no one gets it? Uh, I think, yeah, I'm, I I think I, I'm there. I think that's going to happen no. to me here. I'm going well, to guess... Yes. Let me let me guess, and then you can apologize. Um, Defenseman. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to start spelling it. <laughs> Don't. Please do not. Do not come to me that Turn way. it into Wheel of... We'll turn um, it into Wheel of Fortune. Okay, okay. I'll okay. give you some letters. Okay, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. I think I got it. Because he played for the Blues. Okay, I think, I actually do think I have it. I think, I think it's, it's got to be Murray Barron. It is Murray Barron, okay. yes. Thank God. Yeah. Wow, I was in <laughs> anguish there. I was in anguish. Holy cow. Yeah, no, Murray Barron. I, he, where's he from in BC? He was born in Prince George. Ah. I think at last check, he uh, lives in Kamloops, uh, owns Duffy's Pub. At least uh, he and his, cool. I think, dad were partners at Duffy's. Nice. No, he was, you know, he was one of those guys. Like, again, I mean, that era of the West Coast Express, there were a lot of high-profile guys, and he just kind of kept to himself. I know he weren't around the team then. But, good guy, but just he was sort of low-key, kind of like the Alex Edler of the dressing room now. Like, right. you know, he was in there, but not a lot of people spoke to him. Uh, and I think he was just fine with that, that uh, he was never one to seek out the, the media and the limelight. So there you go. You my, get Murray Barron. My, my personal Murray Barron story is that he was one of my least favorite players to watch. Like, I, I, you know, and, and full respect to him, he had a good career. And I think he was still a good player. But even then, right, like those were the teams that I really watched when I was beginning to think about hockey, not just enjoy it. Um, you know, yeah. there's a reason that, I'm, that I was Artem Chubarov on Twitter, right? And it's that I liked sort of those guys who just won a lot of battles and on and on. And Murray Barron, my joke about Murray Barron was that the guy who's always like, oh, he can't quite keep the puck alive. Or like, oh, just misses the pass, right? Like the guy who just like the puck ended, the play ended on his stick more often than not was, was Barron. And, and again, I think, you know, when, when, when I think about my worldview and, and my biases in sort of watching hockey, right? Really shaped by those play driving grinders and, and by a general, you know, skepticism about the utility of the uh, stay at home defender, right? Those are like hallmarks that were really shaped by my experience rooting for and watching those West Coast Express era Canucks teams. Well, he very much was the definition of a stay-at-home defenseman. I mean, again, <laughs> yeah. he carved out, like, 988 games, so good on him. He carved out a, a great career, but he really essentially, certainly in his time in Vancouver, he was kind of like shin pads on skates, right? Yeah. Like, shot blocking was his thing. He stood in the way of a ton. Uh, he was fearless that way. But, uh, yeah, there wasn't a ton of mobility there. And, again, the Canucks saw him uh, towards the end 
of his career as a Montreal Canadian. He was a Philadelphia Flyer, St. Louis Blue twice, and uh, some time in Phoenix as as well. Uh, J-Pat, I, uh, hey, real, real quick, no, I know we've yep. gone way long, but uh, with Yerke Lume, 985 NHL games, played for the played for the Phoenix Coyotes, um, didn't play for any teams twice in his career, but also played for five teams over the course of his career. Uh, as well, best I can guess, though. So, so uh, I, you know, Yerke Lume, I, I feel very proud of my guess there. Right, and he played for Montreal as well, like Murray did. It was so incorrect. They traveled the same road. You were close. No, those were good. Your guesses were good. Courtney, same sort of idea. A guy yeah, that was around. Blues twice, know, so too, right? You were yeah. all over it. But in the end, it was just, Murray Barrett. Incorrect. <laughs> good one, man. That was, <laughs> yeah. a, that, was a, that was a really tough one. Like, well done. And it's funny because if you'd said he was your least favorite player from the West Coast Express era, I would have got it immediately. <laughs> there you go. I missed out on the clue. Um, a former NHLer Kevin Weeks, the lead analyst at NHL Network, Scott Burnside and Pierre LeBrun's guest this week on Two Man Advantage at The Athletic. And obviously best Kevin, uh, another strong voice oh, uh, the in best the guy. ongoing. A nice guy? Oh, he's the best. Kevin Weeks is one of my all-time favorites. Just an absolute beauty. And he came up a couple weeks back uh, in your clue when it was mm-hmm. Steve Weeks. When you asked, did anybody remember? I struggled to get it on the third clue there. You kind of gave that's me true. that one. So I think we, we have been down that road before. Right. That's true. It's a bad feeling. Hey, check out our comments. <laughs> check out our comments section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app. And look, we love feedback. We want to hear from you. In these times where there isn't a whole lot going on on the ice, if there's a, a topic that you think we should uh, delve into and really sort of buckle down and, and get after, uh, by all means, let us know. We are all ears and there are lots of feedback channels. But don't forget to rate and subscribe. The Vancast on Apple, if you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash the Vancast, you have 40% off your subscription. For Drancer, it's J-Pat. As always, thanks so much for listening to the Vancast here at The Athletic and theathletic.com.